episode of Vascular Crosstalk, a podcast brought to you by the North American Vascular Biology Organization, NAVBA. This is part one of a two-episode special discussing the transition to an academic position, and we will be talking to three professors who have recently gone through that process. First, Dr. Laura Pillay, who is a developmental biologist, mom, and rescue dog owner, working as an assistant professor at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. We also have Dr. Noelia Grande Gutierrez, who is a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon University at the Department of Mechanical Engineering. And finally, we have Dr. Arif Yurdogul, who is an assistant professor of molecular and cellular physiology at LSU Health Shreveport. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Um, and thank you so much for being here today and giving us some of your time to talk to us. Uh, first of all, I just want to take a little bit of time to get to know each other uh, better. And if you could just give me like elevator speech, one minute where you are, where you, what institution you came from, how long you've been an independent PI, and just what your research is, uh, that would be great for all of our listeners. Laura, do you want to go first? Sure. My name is Laura Pillay, and I'm currently an assistant professor at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. I began this job in September of last year, so I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary. Um, so that Happy was 2022. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, still a few months to go. Yes. And I I was a postdoctoral fellow at the National Institutes of Health in Brant Weinstein's lab before taking this position. And my area of research is understanding mechanisms that regulate cranial vascular integrity and development using zebrafish as a model organism. Awesome. Noelia, you want to go ahead? Hi, I'm Noelia Grande Gutierrez. I'm an assistant professor of mechanical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, this is going to be almost my year two, finishing up in August. I started August 2021. Um, and before that, I was a postdoctoral fellow uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. My research is in computational blood flow modeling. So we use computational models to determine uh, fluid forces, hemodynamics, and how that can affect disease uh, evolution. That's so interesting. And I think, Art, you've been next, and you're the one that has been the, an established PI for the longest of this group. It's kind of weird to hear that, yeah. So <laughs> uh, I got my independent position in uh, January of 2021. Uh, at LSU in Louisiana, uh, Health Sciences Center in Shreveport. Uh, before that, I was a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia University, and uh, I've kind of danced around the field of atherosclerosis uh, for the last 13 years or so. I've had interest in endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells and macrophages, and now we're starting to get into fatty liver disease. But the overall uh, uh, enterprise is focused on metabolism and linking dysregulations metabolism between different cell types and different diseases. Great, that's wonderful. It's very varied backgrounds and different institutions. So I think we can cover a little bit of what it is to 
get a faculty position and actually transition successfully <laughs> into academia. What does that look like? Uh, and that's what we hope to cover in today's episode. So I just want to start by asking you, um, how was this application process for you? Especially, I think a question that I get often uh, at conferences from other trainees is, how did you know that you were ready? And how did you choose this career and then started applying? Whichever wants to go first. <laughs> I, I guess I can start. <laughs> um, I actually don't know that I knew that I was ready. Um, it was under the suggestion of my postdoctoral mentor that I that I dip my toes into the the job market. Um, I I I had only just pre-printed my a major postdoctoral paper. I had a review before that, so I wasn't what I would consider a strong candidate, and I was fully anticipating spending another year as a postdoc but I figured it would be good experience. I could prepare my job package and so uh, applied to a variety of places and then was surprised to get a few interviews and then a job offer. Um, I, I should mention, I also didn't have any active grants. I <laughs> had applied for a K99, but it was not discussed. And like I said, I don't know that I was ready, but and so far it has worked out okay. <laughs> well, congratulations. And... <laughs> Um, that's great that you mentioned that point, because I think that another frequent question people have is, do you need a grant to go into job market? And of course, there's varied experiences. Not everybody has a grant and there's different types of grants, too. Uh, so it's, I think, refreshing to know and like good for people like to know it. you can do it. It's achievable. Um, Art, how was that for you? Yeah, so um, to uh, I think answering this dovetails back a, a little bit to the uh, uh, previous question. So um, I wanted to give academia a solid shot, and I knew that midway through my graduate uh, career. And so I was surrounded by uh, a wealth of great advice who uh, of individuals who suggested to seek out a mentor uh, that could stretch my uh, expertise, uh, one, and then uh, one that had a, a track record of getting trainees to a position that I wanted, which was an academic position, and then one whose trainees had a lot of uh, success in, in obtaining uh, transition awards or other types of um, um, awards or grants to move them and propel them into the next phase. And so that brought me to Columbia. And so I had a goal in mind of uh, wanting to get a, a K99R00. And around that time, I heard of the five-year to four-year crunch. So that kind of made things a, a little bit um, um, uh, anxiety writing, I, I guess. Um, but I was... Uh, lucky enough to um, make a right decision uh, in selecting where to go. And uh, my mentor, Ira Tabus, was excellent along the way, providing advice uh, along the way. And I submitted an application at the end of what I would 
call year two of, of my postdoc, beginning of year three. Um, and I uh, got it, uh, was successfully awarded. And so that made the uh, timeline very convenient in terms of knowing when to move on. Right. Um, but that being said, it did put a uh, light at the end of the tunnel. So I knew things that I uh, wish to wrap up. I, I should probably do so in the next two years or it's coming with me. Um, so uh, I was lucky enough to to do that, get that award and, and move into the next position. So. Congratulations on your K99. <laughs> and um, I know it's um from my own experience, it's a, it's a difficult time where you're applying and then even if you get it, then there's all these time management things that will come up. Um, for everybody listening, the K99 um, grant is fairly coveted, I would say, going on the job market. It's, uh, it gives you two years of protected research uh, under your mentor, under your PI, and then three years of independent research. So it supports that transition into um, independence uh, for three years, which is a nice um, added bonus when you're in the job market. Um, but there's other, I would say, um, organizations or association equivalent awards to a K99, uh, the K99 CNIH version. Um, and also, of course, you don't necessarily need one <laughs> to get a job. But um, I would love now to hear your story, Noelia, because your background is a little bit different from in an engineering uh, background. Yeah. Uh, so for me, uh, in terms of knowing about whether I wanted to pursue academia or not, I think it was around like mid-grad school. Um, I was really enjoying research and what I was doing. So I started considering uh, continuing uh, in academia. I did experiment a little bit with the job market at the final year of my PhD. Uh, in engineering, it's not uncommon to to apply directly as a grad student on your final year for, for job positions. Uh, I, end, I didn't end up getting like a position at that point, but I did get some interviews and that was like encouraging. I got my package kind of like ready. So um, that kind of like really um, helped me to, to move forward and say, okay, like I really want to do this. I found that even if you are considering academia, like sitting down and writing your package, I think it really helps to make sure like this is really what you want to do, because this is the time where you're going to sit and you're going to write about like the research. And if you don't really enjoy that, maybe like, you know, like it's kind of like um, a sign that you don't want to do this for like the rest of the <laughs> of your career. So um, I think it's a good exercise to kind of like probe what you're at. Um, after that, I did a postdoc and in engineering, as you mentioned, like things are a bit different, like typically postdocs um, in particular, if they are computer, if it's computational research, as in my case, it's a bit shorter. Uh, so I started applying in my second year of postdoc, like starting my second year. And, and I didn't have any grants at that time either so 
I mean, like it, it's I, it's great to have grants, obviously. Like, uh, but um, I didn't have any, and I did get a few interviews and in, in a few offers. So, yeah, that is so interesting. Um, I will share a little bit more of of, of my own experience because I think it's relevant to this topic. I'm in the middle of transitioning. Um, I'm a research scientist currently at MD Anderson, where I finished my postdoc in. 2021. Um, and I went in the job market last year. Uh, and I am starting a job as an assistant professor at Northwestern University um, in the medical school um, this fall. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, congrats. <laughs> yes, in anxiety. Thank you. Um, so I um I just added because like I think we're look what you're discussing is relevant. There's a lot of questions that I, I'm getting asked currently, like when I go to conferences, but also uh there's questions that I have for you about like this transition, you know, like just about to begin. So if I can add a little bit of my own experience into this, I will. Um, so how did you decide which places to apply to? Is there a strategy behind it? How many applications did you submit? How many interviews did you get? These are like almost exact verbatim questions I get from students all the time. When, when I when I wrapped up, it was a, a, a when I started applying towards the middle of 2020, early 2020, which as we know was at the height of COVID, um, at least before we knew what exactly was going on. So I had um, several interviews lined up um, that kind of fell through. And then those that didn't fall through, um, there were hiring freezes. And so yeah. that significantly narrowed uh, the opportunities to go visit and, and, and whatnot. And then um, surprising to say uh, that a K-99 isn't necessarily the golden ticket like some people think it is. Um, it appears that departments actually do care about the interest of, uh, of their own direction of, of their enterprise. So. Um, it's not as straightforward, you know, I, I think whether you have a, a grant or not, actually. Um, but the uh, selecting a location actually um, was uh, helped by input from uh, my family and my spouse. So uh, fortunately for myself and my spouse, we are uh, both from the same city in Louisiana, in Shreveport. And uh, fortunately, a job had opened up in Shreveport. And so um, I applied and, and uh, took it. And um, But had it not, um, we were hoping to aim somewhere in the south, southeast. So um, knowing exactly where you want to live helps out. You know, I, I think, you know, uh, I hear people going, I could apply anywhere in, in the U.S. How do I choose? I think that's... Kind of the first thing is where do you see uh, you yep. and your family wanting to uh, experience life together? So, um, yeah. you know, for us, it was back home. So we went from Louisiana to New York and then we uh, moved back. And so it's been nice. I, I think it's actually rather 
um, uh, not common for families to have the opportunity to move back with kids where their uh, grandparents are. So, um, yeah, what a great to, opportunity! Yeah, we, we we were very fortunate to be able to have that opportunity to come back. Yeah, uh, Laura, you did it more recently. Um, so, were you also affected by the hiring freezes that were due to COVID? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think most most of those freezes were over at most places that I applied to. Um, I applied to a broad set of universities. I I knew that I wanted to have a balanced teaching and research position because I enjoyed teaching and mentorship, but was also passionate about the idea of having my own lab. And I applied primarily within Canada and the US. As for number of applications, I think it was around 30, maybe. <laughs> Um, like, like I said, it was to a broad range of types yeah. of places, everywhere from primarily undergraduate institutions, which I'm at currently to R2s and R1s. I'm originally from Canada. So that's one of the reasons why we looked at applying I could to tell about the Canadian. <laughs> the way you said about. Yeah. Can, like, can you hear it in my Canadian. Head? <laughs> <laughs> um, you bring out a really important point that I think we, it might be helpful uh, to clarify, uh, one of the first things I encountered when I was applying to schools uh, or to um, job up, jobs uh, was which kind of institution I wanted to apply to, which I had never thought about. And uh, you bring out that great point that there's more like undergraduate institutions that are geared more towards teaching or they have a heavier teaching component. Um, there's the medical schools, and which it varies a little bit on how money moves around and how they're financed. Uh, so you might care about that uh, component when, and you would say the advantage in some cases, but it really is up to like what you like um, to do. There's less teaching generally involved in medical schools. Um, so there's this difference <laughs> on what kind of institution you want to be a part of um, that you need to be aware of. Um, was that easy for you, for like all of you? Or I don't know how it works in engineering, actually, no idea. Yeah, so so for, I think it's kind of like a similar thing. Um, so for me, at least in, in my personal experience, um, I think I had mostly like three criteria. Uh, so one being places I wanted to live. Uh, I I mean, like I applied, applied very, very broadly and applied to positions in the U.S., uh, some in Canada and some in Europe too. Not very many, but like a few ones. Uh, I'm originally from Spain, so it made sense for me like to have maybe the opportunity to be closer to home. Uh, so that was one factor, but within those locations, I only applied to places where I feel like I would want to leave. Mm -hmm. um, then I was interested in applying to R1s, so I kind of like limited my applications to those institutions. And then for the type of research I do, although I'm in engineering, um, I was really interested in having uh, either um, 
an institution that had also a medical school or a city where there was like a strong network of hospitals or institutions with with a medical setting because I really like my research would really uh, benefit from these collaborations with clinical doctors so those were kind of like the three main criteria that that I was using for applications and how did you go about it there's different sites um <laughs> there's different like postings how how do you guys find the job openings yeah I think mostly like the typical sites of uh, academic jobs and then sometimes also looking at directly at the department's websites see if there were posting any openings yeah I, I took a similar approach lots of your typical online job postings but if there are institutions that I was especially interested in working at then I went to their specific postings and on the university websites I've just either cold emailed senior <laughs> faculty and departments or department chairs. Um, that was kind of my strategy. So maybe that's why there was a lot less, uh, you know, a uh, lot, lot more surprise in, in that front where many places just, they said, there's no job openings. There's not much we can do. Um, yeah. But that was yeah, kind of that, which I took is this is a department I think I might be interested in. Uh, let me just reach out because sometimes there's job opportunities, but um, paperwork or rubber stamping hasn't been applied. So there is a, 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 a department seeking a, a, a candidate, but the formal posting hasn't been opened or, or something like that. So. Right. No. Yeah, that the other place I found out about jobs was actually from peers, mm -hmm. other postdoctoral fellows that were also on the job market. And if there was something relevant, they they would send me those postings. Yeah, which was hugely think, useful. Yes, I yeah. took a combo approach. I did both. I went through all the websites with job postings and also called email people um, or emailed mentors or people that I knew to be like, hey, I'm in the job market. Here's my CV. If you know anything, just let me know. Um, and most people I think are actually receptive to that. Like they'll be like, oh, if I hear anything, like I'll let you know, or have you checked out this job posting? Um, and then even if it's outside of their institutions, but if they know something like they, because they're most likely to know your research. So they're more likely to be able to send you a posting that is, more specific to what you do so I think it's very good to actually reach out to people when you're in job search yeah well one of the other things I, I forgot to mention um I mean for me it was not so useful because I applied like fall 2020 so it was kind of like in the middle <laughs> of the pandemic but some conferences do offer these sessions now, uh, kind of like mid-faculty candidates. And I did a virtual one uh, and it was somehow useful because I think as Art mentioned, um, some job, po job postings have not been formalized, but in this type of venue, uh, people who are like from departments who are planning on hiring may just, you know, like go to these events, 
and talk with the candidates and then you know if you if you have the opportunity to talk to them maybe they may send you like the the link to their to their uh, opening when they post it and so first kind of like contact with some some people in in departments that are hiring so that could be another strategy so mention whether you had a grant going into this process or not um so Noelia and Laura you both of you did not have a grant that's correct so yeah. is there a strategy that you thought was particularly beneficial to you coming with that background that like you didn't have a grant going into the job search or that did just did not cross your mind well, I didn't want, I don't want to be misleading. I had obtained an intramural research fellowship previously from the NIH. So there was some evidence that I could obtain funding on my <laughs> CV, mm-hmm. but no, I didn't, I didn't have an active or a very right. large scale grant. Um, and it was, I mean, it was definitely a consideration, but it's, what can you do <laughs> when you're applying? <laughs> So yeah. I, I think my biggest strategy was just making sure that the rest of my application was really strong, that I had, and what I w- I'm hoping turned out to be an excellent research statement that um, could could indicate what my research aims for future grants could be, or, and during the interview, ideas on how I could obtain funding, what what kind of grants I would be applying for, what my specific aims would be for some of those grants, and just have a really clear idea of what I could do in the future and hopefully be successful at in, in terms of securing funding. Right. Yeah, I, I was in a similar position. I did not have an active grant as like a transition grant type of thing, but I have, I have had like funding before, like another predoctoral and, and so grants. So I guess that's important. At least I feel like my impression also after talking to people, like it's kind of like you demonstrate some type of ability of I got funding at some point rather than I have funding right now. Uh, obviously you have funding right now. Like, yeah, it's it's definitely very attractive and like, you know, you're on track, but yeah, for, for me, it was a similar as a, uh, as with, with Laura explained, like I had previous funding, so I tried my best and like explaining what type of grants I would apply for and during the interview, also like putting out those potential projects that I would go for, specific aims, things like that. Yeah. So do you guys want to discuss a little bit of what goes into your research package or like the job application package? I think that might be very helpful to some people now. Sure. Uh, it, it, I, I do want to make a comment if that's okay. So yeah, go for it. Uh, on the on the previous question, I think you asked. So uh, I I did I I did have a, a transition award with me, but I like I said, it's it's not a golden ticket. Um, I think the institutions just want to see a return on investment. So we're all. I think they see everyone as an investment and what kind of return will they get? And I think it becomes more clear to the institution if you possess funding at the time you're looking for a position. If not, 
Is it is there a do you have a history or is there precedence of you being able to obtain funding? And if not, then you can still assuage some of those concerns with high impact publications, um, which is it's just a financial currency of of science. So um, I, I think having that at least um, go get on uh, history on your CV or your research statement. Um, I think still move, means a lot. Um, so it's not the end all be all, but you know, yeah. I, I think looking, people often get really focused on, on their postdoc productivity, which they should, but I think you've got to look at the whole picture, which is what, what were you able to do as a graduate student? How did that propel you into this next phase? And were you able to secure something or, or apply to competitive applications um, or, or award mechanisms and showing some type of history or precedence that you can either obtain funding or the research you're doing um, is worth funding as evidence based on the merit of the journal that you've published in. Right, I think that, it's, yeah, I think it's a balance, right? Like none of us are, perfect candidates but what would the ideal candidate be like someone with a million high publications you know, <laughs> high impact factor publications and three different types of grant including academic you know like that's the ideal candidate and I think that you will check some of those great for you to check all of them but um normally I would say you have a weakness and then you have the strength and I think it's important when you're going into the job market to recognize which ones are which because most likely during your interview either someone is going to bring it up just straight up to you or you should um, during your seminars or during your chalk talk you actually can bring it up yourself and discuss how you're going to address this thing that can be perceived as a weakness in your application, but just go ahead and discuss it, you know? So it's like, I am fully aware of who I am as a candidate. Um, I think that at least for me going in with sort of that clarity, like knowing what was my issues and not, um, that I think helped me. Yeah, and having us service and leadership as well. I think, you know, departments along with the institution want, want to see not just a financial return on investment, but also uh, the service and, and position that you can be put in in 10 years or, or whatever. So do you have a track record of serving on extramural committees or um, participating in, in leadership roles? So um, yeah. I think we all get lost in the weeds about you know, funding um, and uh, publications, but I, I think you're right. It's a it's a well-rounded picture, and you just want to put yourself in the best place possible to get whatever job you want. And uh, the sooner you recognize that, I think the things you have control over, you can start knocking those off the list. Um, right. But anyways, I've cut you off. I, I yeah. No, I think this is a great. Ad, yeah, I think <laughs> it's a great addition to our conversation uh, because I think you need to know yourself as a candidate, and then you need to tailor your application. So let's get into the application itself. Uh, how it is composed? Which documents do you think are more important, and which ones 
uh, do you think should actually be personalized or customized to each application? Which ones do you just go like, here it is, send? Um, what do you think? I, I think in terms of personalization, I definitely personalize my cover letter a little bit for each each, each of my applications to different institutions, depending on what the job posting was and what it was specifically that they were looking for. Um, research statement to some degree as well, um, depending on what the focus of the search was, though it, it didn't change all that much. I was, when I was looking for, for different jobs and looking at different postings, um, I was really only applying to those that I felt I would be a good fit for. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, things that did not change too much were uh, my diversity, equity, and inclusion statement and um, teaching philosophy statement. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Noelia? Yeah, I, I also, um, I think I personalize or like customize a little bit more the cover letter. I think that depending on the job posting, the department, because I applied to both mechanical engineering, biomedical engineering, and some other more like broadly biological engineering department. So I try to customize that a little bit more and see uh, whether there were centers that I could collaborate with, hospitals, med school, like try to customize that a little bit in the cover letter. For the research statement, um, I think I did not change it too much maybe a few exceptions that the position was a bit different, but most of the types of positions I were applying were kind of like in the same um, specific area. So um, I did not change that significantly. And same for like teaching and teaching and diversity statement, they were pretty much the same. I did customize a little section of each of those, uh, having like, you know, looking a little bit of what type of classes the department would offer and what would be a good fit in terms of my background. So I added some of that information, but it was like like the main philosophy obviously didn't change, but just like a little bit of information on that. And same for, for the other statement, uh, every campus has like different um, uh, initiatives going on. So I tried to see a little bit of what centers existed and what initiatives were in place and kind of like comment briefly on how I could contribute to those things. Right. It's very I, time I, consuming. <laughs> I guess uh, I did something similar too. Yeah. yeah you, I, I, I think recently my university had a, a search for <laughs> a new hire and being on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I did that I think helped me secure this position was determining where I would fit within the department and the institution, which did mean doing a lot of research, which is incredibly time consuming. Like Noelia said, looking at what initiatives they have and where what I could either help with or participate in and just having a clear idea of what those things could be. Yeah, it's a thing, it's a matter of knowing what you bring to the table. Um, But I feel like my goal when I was applying, it was to do like an application a day about that. 
Um, and every night after putting my son to sleep, that's what I would do. Just like focus on that. Uh, and it was very time consuming. So just like heads up, you will spend a lot of time researching faculty members, the department. Um, I feel like at least I put it in the cover letter, uh, possible collaborations with people within the institution, sometimes even not in the same department, but you know, in the institution uh, to show like, I did the work, you know, like I see that these are possibilities. These are areas where we can overlap. And I do think that like after interviewing, like during my interviews, I had people say like, oh, so you know, like, cover letter, you mentioned this person. So they actually didn't read it. Um, and it was important that I knew who they were talking about and like what they were talking about, because it's a very complicated process and it goes a long time and it could have been a while last time you checked your cover letter for that application but um it's an investment and there is a return in that time that you invested or do you want to comment anything uh the only thing i think i did that i got a a, a bit of advice on was when you tailor your research strategy, uh, look at the department you're applying to and at the end of your uh, research statement, put how you could collaborate with each individual within the department. So it looks like you did your homework. Um, and if you do that, you, you did, it actually makes the interview process a bit easier. Um, and I think actually, um, just uh, I'm on a, a job search right now, but you know, I think COVID, uh, COVID era taught us that you can um, interview a lot more people through Zoom as opposed to having to fly out individuals. So you, it's I think now a bit more the the bar to get into a preliminary phase of. Uh, the interview is a bit easier simply because it's more convenient for uh, the search committee to interview more individuals than they would have previously if they could only do a phone call or or um, uh, fly in people for interviews. So um, you, there's a lot more opportunity to impress if you do those small tricks. And that's, that's really the only way I personalize the uh, research. Yeah, so, I I part. also, you were talking about impressing and it reminded me of a pre-interview that I had. Um, that yep, it was yep, even yep. like an interview, it was a pre-interview. Um, I had a little mm -hmm. slide prepared. It was literally four slides, a background slide and three for like each of my research aims that were in my research strategy document. And I had... Um, someone had expressed interest through one of my collaborators. Um, they were like, oh, um, sure, like meet with this person. And they set up a Zoom call and they asked me, okay, so like, what do you do? And what's your interest? And I was like, well, if you don't mind me sharing my screen. And it was literally a 20 minute Zoom call, but I had those slides prepared and those four slides <laughs> helped me uh, secure an interview in that um, institution because it's, I think it was a 
better way even for me to communicate what I was interested in ultimately so heads up like have a slide deck ready to go about your research thank you for joining us on this episode of vascular crosstalk we would like to hear from you please let us know what you thought about this episode future topics that you would like to hear about and other people that you would like us to interview you can reach out via Twitter at Vascular Biology. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was produced by Netbo's Education Committee, and I want to thank Niha Auha and Strider Meadows for their work in making this podcast possible. This was Lysandra Villa Ellis for Vascular Crosstalk. Until we meet again. <laughs>